You can't handle the truth. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. To infinity and beyond! Hi, and welcome to episode 54 of the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm Manny Manuel. Man, you know, it, we've been doing the show for so long over, uh, over Skype. And would you believe it, loyal listeners? We're in the same room. We are in the same room. It's a reunion episode. It's a reunion. Yes, I am, I am in Kamloops solely for the purpose of recording an episode with Manny <laughs> and, you know, seeing my family Easter weekend, yada, yada, yada. Blah, 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 blah. This is yeah. the reason you came. This is the reason I came back and purchased a flight. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see your face that's uh, not obscured by a computer screen, Manny. Yes, it is so lovely to be in the same room. I've been looking forward to this so much. And I'm so excited for us to sit down and record an episode live. It's been a, it's been a big love fest since you uh, since you picked me up. We had gifts for each other. Yeah, Manny got me uh, Captain Phillips and The Town, which are two lovely movies. Captain Phillips, uh, we just were talking about this off air. Best cry scene of all time, candidate, I guess. A candidate for sure. Yeah. Candidate for sure. I guess we probably have to sit down and think about uh, what the other ones could be. Could be a future episode. Who knows. Ooh. Right? Uh, and yes, I in turn was gifted these magnificent Captain America socks that I probably actually should have put on, but oh well. Oh, oh well, they're, they're here. They're in the room anyway. They are. All right. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about Road to Perdition. Uh, we watched it in advance. I guess the initial plan was to watch it together, but I am just too gosh darn popular and have yes. too many friends in Kamloops, so... Uh, couldn't quite squeeze in the time for that. But. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be doing uh, the uh, 2002 uh, film Road to Perdition. So before we get into that, uh, because I'm overly excited about Sam being here, I almost forgot about our social media. So please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you'll give us a five-star rating, it will increase our profile so other people can find this lovely podcast. If you could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie as well. If you ever want to talk to us, you can email us at sammanavinemoviepodcast at gmail.com. All right, we should also mention off the top, I guess, that people should listen uh, after the credits again today because uh, we, after the resounding success of our uh, first post-credit scene, I actually don't know what the numbers on that are, but uh, we're going to be doing a review of Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 2, which has yet to be released as we are recording this, but we will uh, record that later and tack it on. Yeah, so please stick around after we uh, sign off as we will be having yet another post-credits scene. Unless you don't watch Game of Thrones, in which case, you know, just get out of here. Yeah, then you can just sign off at the end of the episode. Uh, okay, let's dive into Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition is in 2002 was directed by Sam Mendes. It was written by David Self, based off the Max Allen Collins graphic novel, starring Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, Daniel Craig, Jude Law, and Tyler Hoechlin. has a 72 Metascore. It was nominated for six Oscars, winning one. It won for Best Cinematography, like it should have, by Conrad Hall, who is a three-time winner and ten nominations himself. The other nominations for Road to Perdition that year were Best Supporting Actor for Paul Newman, Best Art and Set Decoration, Best Sound, Best Sound Editing, and Best Original Score. 
It had a budget of 80 million and it grossed 181. The plot, a mob enforcer's son witnesses a murder, forcing him and his father to take to the road and his father down a path of redemption and revenge. Sam, I'm going to take a chance here. Had you seen Road to Perdition prior to this? I had not actually. I knew just about nothing <laughs> about this movie outside of what you had told me, which is that Tom Hanks was not such a nice guy in it. But that was that was about all that I knew. I didn't know when it was set. I didn't know what it was about. didn't know anything. Wow, so you went in completely, completely blind. Went, I intentionally didn't look anything up, as I tend to not. And Love. I did not know a damn thing about it. Side note, I'm realizing I probably should have brought my laptop because uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of facts about this movie. And I'm not the one who usually comes prepared anyway, but now not having, uh, not having the facts in front of me is going to be uh, <laughs> a little tough. But we'll get there. We'll get there. That's we'll... what phones are for, I guess. That's right so uh sam your thoughts uh spoiler free on road to perdition spoiler free thoughts on road to perdition uh this was a pretty darn good movie uh i i've been waiting to watch this one for a while i know it's been on your list uh to recommend i kind of feel like a huge asshole uh, having recommended or having uh chosen euro trip now <laughs> I chose. We went from Euro Trip to Road to Perdition. Only a only a slight bump in quality from a, week to week. A smidge, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to keep them close together in quality. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, Euro Trip was also up for best cinematography that year. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Road to Perdition really impressed me. Um, it's nice to see Tom Hanks. Um, maybe saying he's playing against type is a little strong, but he's uh, showing a little bit more range, uh, being sort of a uh, an antihero, I guess you could call him. Um, so I really enjoyed his performance. This is a movie that doesn't have uh, a lot of dialogue. It's a pretty uh, pretty subtle movie, so uh, definitely have to pay attention uh, while you're watching it. And for that reason, I wish I could have given it a rewatch uh, mm -hmm. just once. I did watch this um, for recording on Sunday now, on Easter Sunday. Happy Easter, by the way, Manny. Oh, happy Easter, <laughs> right. Um, and happy Passover to our uh, Jewish friends. Uh, uh, yes. Looking at you, Jordan. Um I've completely lost my train of thought now. <laughs> Road to Perdition, right, what we're talking about. Yes. Um, but I, I watched this on, uh, I think, Wednesday last week, so it's not as fresh in my mind as I would like. Yep. Again, I'm just too darn popular, man. I know. I, could, <laughs> yeah. I can tell. But, uh, yeah. I saw the picture of you and Katie, so yes. Oh, yeah. Does Katie listen? I don't know. Shout I, out to Katie if she does. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make her listen to this one since we gave her a shout out. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, I guess long story short would be that uh, I was super impressed on the first watch. I'd probably like to give it another rewatch uh, just to really uh, delve into a lot more of the details. But it's really uh, subtly performed, subtly written, subtly directed. And uh, I was very impressed by Mr. Mendez, who I actually, side note, I really do like American Beauty. So I was, uh, I was happy to watch another one of his films. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a big Sam Mendez fan. Uh, I probably should take a look at his filmography. I don't think he's done anything that I've, I don't think he's done anything I've hated. Mm. Uh, his <coughs> filmography, <coughs> pardon me, isn't that long. The ones I can think of off the top of my head, obviously American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Revolutionary Road, and uh, Jarhead, then Skyfall, and I think he did two Bond films. My God, look at you. If I'm not mistaken. Other than that, I, I don't know what i He I'm... also did do Spectre. Spectre. Okay, well, Spectre wasn't that great. I definitely need to rewatch. Yeah. Because my memories of it aren't that great. The only thing I remember liking about that movie is the opening scene at uh, the Day of the Dead Festival. Yeah, it's one, it's one... Is it one big tracking shot, too? It is, yeah. Fuck. Or at least it's made to look like it. Yes. I think they Birdmaned it a little bit. Mm. Oh, Birdman. <laughs> mm, uh, Birdman. Um, am I, if you're looking at it, am I, did I miss any? 
Um, I'm trying to find the goddamn phones. Uh, American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Jarhead, Revolutionary Road, Away We Go, Skyfall, oh. Spectre, and he's releasing one this year called 1917. It's a okay. war film. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, the, I look, I Away guess. We Go. I don't recognize that name. Away We Go. What was that? He was only director of that, I guess we can see. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Leads are John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So it's that's 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 my one Sam Mendes hole then. So I've seen everything else. Everything else that he's done, I've really enjoyed. This might be at the top of my list for Sam Mendes films. Uh, like you said, there the dialogue in this isn't heavy. It's honestly, this might be. <sighs> This is probably easily in my top 10, if not my top five most beautiful films I've ever seen. The cinematography in this is astounding. And there's a couple scenes, one in particular that we'll get to in spoilers, um, that might that would challenge for the most beautiful scene I've ever seen. And the acting is superb throughout. <clears throat> the score is one of my, I always, I want to say one of my favorite, but that would still maybe only make a top 20. Yeah. Uh, but the score in this is absolutely haunting and beautiful uh, by Thomas Newman. The This is the last acting performance by Paul Newman, and what a way to go out. And this, uh, like I mentioned earlier, this was uh, a cinematography win for Conrad Hall, and he actually won this uh, posthumously. He died prior to the Academy Awards. So his last, I don't know if this was his last film, but it uh, he... I don't, I don't know exactly when he passed away, if he maybe snuck in another movie before he died. Uh, but he got uh, he got the Oscar for this movie, and it's it's rightfully so. If anybody's unsure about what cinematography is, watch this movie and you'll understand. Every frame is beautiful. Every shot is gorgeous. The framing, the camera movements, it's an absolutely exquisite film to watch. The performances by everyone, like I said before, are really great. Uh, Paul Newman did get uh, an Oscar nomination for it. There's no, the only weak part for me, um, and it's usually the, when it comes to these kind of films, it's usually from the kid, uh, Tyler Hoechlin. He's not weak, but he's not great. There's a couple scenes he has that he's good, and there's a couple scenes where he's not all that good. Other than that, I don't really have much to uh, dismiss about this movie. I remember loving it when I came out. Uh, when we did, and I don't have the list in front of me, when we did our uh, our Oscar retrospective for this year, this is one of the movies I would have nominated for Best Picture this year. And again, I wish I had the list in front of me. I'm pretty sure this made my top five Tom Hanks performances from that episode as well. Right, yes. So that's uh, Sam and I's uh, spoiler-free thoughts. Uh, I want to dive into this movie because this is... Uh, a movie I absolutely love. So we are going to dive into it. Spoilers coming. So if you haven't seen the movie, here's your chance. Three, two, one, go fuck yourself. Here we go. Uh, in 1931, during the Great Depression, Michael Sullivan Sr. is an enforcer for Irish mob boss John Rooney in Rock Island, Illinois. Rooney raised the orphan Sullivan and loves him more than his own biological son, Connor. I'm going to stop there as the plot synopsis uh, at that point kind of jumps pretty far ahead and there's some stuff that I want to dive into one again and I'm going to be repeating this over and over and over throughout our discussion is how beautiful this film is the opening credit sequence with all these shots of Michael Jr. riding his bike 
especially I don't know if you do remember Sam because you've only seen it once, mm-hmm. but it's the op- an opening shot where he comes over this snowy hill on his bike, and he rides down, and it leaves a path, and I'm like, I guess they did it in one take. <laughs> they got this absolutely exquisite, beautiful shot in one take, and then there's these tr- I don't want to say tracking shots, but the the camera moves with him as he's biking through these people getting off work at some type of mill. They're walking one direction. The boy and the camera are moving in the opposite. It's haunting. It's beautiful. Thomas Newman's amazing score is playing with it. Damn, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> I honestly don't know if I can add anything to that. <laughs> I mean, we're like one sentence of the plot in and you, uh, you're you already ranting, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, but yeah, uh, the cinematography did wow me in this movie. The exact shots you're referencing, again, I... I would really like to give it uh, a full rewatch. Um, I think I was maybe still getting my notebook set up at this point, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a that's a mistake on my part. But yeah, I I knew pretty quickly into this movie that we were in for a treat uh, visually. Wicked. Uh, moving forward, then uh, we also it's again great uh, great storytelling abilities by Sam Mendes and the use of the camera is at this point in the film, we're still kind of looking at everything through Michael Jr.'s lens. So he's not close with his father. So all the shots of the father are from far away, through a door frame, all from Michael Jr.'s perspective. And it really shows that distance. But it also shows the respect that parents had back then, a respect slash fear that fathers carried back then. And it's really articulated well. And Tom Hanks really carries himself well uh, throughout this film. But here is... Uh, a nice moment of it. Um, then they go to a wake. And the beautiful Paul Newman arrives on scene. And I don't know how much experience you have with Paul Newman. Not Sam, much. Probably maybe just as a voice from Cars. <laughs> I didn't even see Cars. <laughs> okay, good. Because it's probably one of the worst Pixar films. Um well, that's that's kind of cool because maybe I can uh, we can start throwing some more Paul Newman films into your filmography Ooh, here. That's an idea. Um, so, off the top of your head, is this? I'm sure you've probably seen other movies with Paul Newman, but this might be one that kind of stands out for you. How did you find him in this movie? Yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed him. I, I like the way that uh, his character is set up in this movie and the way he's introduced. Um, mostly through reputation and being talked about first. I really like when movies do that I to know. sort of establish yep. a villain. But his reputation uh, definitely uh, is pretty outstanding in this movie. Uh, he's referred to, I think, as uncle a couple of times. Yep. And like he's set up very well to be like a, a paternal figure, both to Tom Hanks and to the son, whose name I don't have in front of me right Connor. now. Connor. Yeah, and to Connor. So he's set up as being this uh, father figure to both of these people. Which is a nice, uh, it's a nice little, uh, it, it accents the heartbreak that comes with, uh, with their allegiances sort of uh, going separate ways, I guess. So I like when he's set up at first in the movie and his, his performance in particular, I found uh, menacing is the wrong word, but uh, intimidating, nice. I guess. Yeah, yep. Very intimidating. Uh, then we are introduced to Daniel Craig as uh, Michael Jr. has to go up and get... Uh, uh, Uncle John Rooney? John Rooney, is that right? Yeah, John. Oh, something like that. Yeah. I have to get John Rooney's jacket, and there's this one 
shot of Daniel Craig smoking a cigarette. It's really close up. It's of Daniel Craig's lips and the cigarette and the smoke comes from his mouth. Again, get ready because all I'm going to talk about is how fucking beautiful this movie is. I honestly can't say this enough. Like if if I I really hope that this was Conrad Hall's last film because what a way to go out. He the I like how I was always curious heading into this film, and I, and I did see it back in 2002. I was super excited to see uh, Sam Mendes' follow-up to American Beauty. And I was curious as to how Tom Hanks is going to come across as uh, somebody kind of mean and menacing. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect, this wake is a, a nice introduction to him as Finn McGovern is giving a eulogy talking about his dead brother and insinuating that perhaps Connor or somebody else uh, is responsible for it. And Mike Sr. steps out of the crowd, just grabs Finn McGovern and just pulls him aside in a very stern, and you can see there's almost no resistance out of respect for what Mike Sullivan's reputation is. Um, The... After that, there's a scene that is absolutely touching, and it's where Hanks and Newman uh, play a piano together. And it really shows the bond that these two have, the paternal connection they have, and it also shows the jealousy that Connor, played by Daniel Craig, has of their connection. It's a nice scene that really sets everything up perfectly. Yeah, the relationships between all of them are really fleshed out well in this movie. Um, so, side note, uh, this was actually Conrad Hall's last movie. Uh, American Beauty and Road to Perdition were the last two that he did. Um, but yeah, I, I especially like uh, what you said about their relationships being set up. And uh, Daniel Craig, I guess, I probably would not have known at this point. I, I first became really familiar with Daniel Craig, of course, from the Bond movies, but... Um, yeah, seeing him in serious roles uh, as a little bit of a younger man was sort of a surprise, and even the uh, the American accent threw me off too. It was uh, it's well performed, and Daniel Craig is uh, maybe maybe an underrated aspect of this movie because I enjoyed his performance thoroughly. Yeah, uh, especially I, the jealousy that he portrays yes. comes across really well. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, the jealousy he portrays is fantastic, and his American accent's really really well done. It is much like. Uh, who's the other one? Uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya is one of the one of the all time best accents there in Get Out. Yes. Um, so Rooney sends Connor and Sullivan to meet with disgruntled associate Finn McGovern, uh, but Connor shoots McGovern, resulting in Sullivan gunning down McGovern's men. Sullivan's twelve year old son, twelve year old son Michael Jr., has hidden in his father's car and witnesses the event. Despite Sullivan swearing his son to secrecy. Runer pressures Connor to apologize for the reckless action. Okay, we'll stop there. I did forget to mention, by the way, uh, Finn McGovern. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to touch on him, and I of course you did. You're laughing just because. I mean, we're, we're we just started season eight of Game of Thrones, so I would be remiss uh, to not tell you that everything I have about him in my notes, he's referred to as Mance Raider. So. <laughs> <laughs> of course he is. As soon as yep. I, when I, so, I knew that you were going to talk about yeah. him, even before. Before I started watching the movie, I'm like, well, it's either Syrian Hines or Kieran Hines. Again, we've 
we've, we haven't figured out what pronunciation much like with him and Cillian or Killian Murphy. I think we landed on Killian, but I I'm not we, sure. But right. I'm, I'm still just going to go with Scarecrow. Oh, right. <laughs> Scarecrow and Mace Rider? Is yeah. That's, okay. Yeah. All right. So I knew with him being in it that you were going to, uh, you were going to definitely make a reference to that. And I was actually also curious, I, because I wasn't sure how blind you're going in, I was going to be curious as to if you even knew Daniel Craig was in the film. I did know uh, Daniel Craig was in the film, actually. I think I maybe looked up the cast list first. I didn't realize it was directed by Sam Mendes. It, it, it's funny, the moment that I realized was uh, when we see the dinner table at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the dinner scene right at the beginning looks exactly the same as American Beauty. So it's like, oh, this is, this is Sam Mendes. <laughs> Uh, it's here where, again, we get to see, um, uh, Mike Jr. has hidden in the, in his father's car, uh, trying to figure out what exactly his father does for, uh, Rooney. And so he goes and we witness, I, I like how, how, I like how they frame the shot. We're watching Connor and Mike, well, Connor assassinate Finn McGovern, um, from Michael's point of view, who's looking through a hole in the bottom of a door, and everything's shot from that angle, and it's done really well. And this, I like how when Connor shoots Finn McGovern, it's all in slow mo to capture the horror that Michael Jr. is watching. Yeah, I liked that angle too. It almost sort of acted as a like a double POV because mm-hmm. it is from uh, the kid's perspective, but it also, in a way, is from Tom Hanks' perspective as yeah, well. Yeah, because Tom Hanks, he yeah. basically is kind of looking through his son, or his son's basically kind of look, almost looking through his father's legs. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, well, and now, not I haven't been able to show it off, but I I have talked that my my setup here at my house is is nice. And I have a very nice sound system. So when Mike Sr. unloads that Tommy gun on the guys, it uh, it reverberated in my front room so well that my phone and my uh, remote both thought they're being used. And so their, their faces lit up. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. Um, it's really loud. It's really well done. And I like, I, I like the scene. That's when... Uh, Connor sees Mike Jr. and uh, Mike Sr. chases him down and realizes it's his son. And this is where the story really starts getting going. Yeah, this movie really doesn't waste a lot of time getting to the conflict. Like, I think within the within the first like 20 minutes of this movie or something like everybody who needs to be dead is dead and every plot point that <laughs> needs to be in place is in place and it's like let's start this this crazy movie. Um, there's a line, uh, it's the next morning, um, Rooney shows up at the house, uh, aware of what's gone on, that Mike Jr. has seen this, and I love the subliminal, almost threat, slash encouragement that he gives Michael Jr. Um, it's kind of chilling to see Rooney almost threaten, like, a 12-year-old boy. Yeah, it's. I can't remember what the line is, but I was super impressed by that too. I usually have this sort of stuff yeah, written down. Yeah, something about uh, your secret's safe with us, and he pauses the dice. Remember? Yeah, yeah, and I, uh, I think you said it's it's our secret it's or something, our, yeah. something, something like that. It's really well done. Then we get there's a uh, Mike Senior goes off with um, with Rooney, and there's a line in here that I I love, and I wrote it down. Sons are put on this earth to trouble their fathers. Yeah. Um, 
like Sam and I had mentioned, there's not there's not a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of again gorgeous camera work um, and a lot of wordless, I guess for lack of a better wordless dialogue. A lot of looks, glances, and camera movements and body actions that really help tell the story. But some of the lines in here um, really resonate well. This is a really well-crafted movie and really well-written. Um, this is... We're st <laughs> we still haven't really gotten that far, but there's so much to go on. The next big scene for me, what I just talked about, is where Rooney forces his son to apologize. And like you said... They've established the character of Rooney so well that when he keeps saying "try again," yeah. it's you know he's not fucking around, and you can and that's again like we said, there's not a lot of dialogue action. You can see the look on Connor's face that when he says "try again" the first time, it took him aback, and then when he says it again, the look of fear on his own son's face, and he gets up and apologizes properly. The, that's just the magic of cinematography and editing. Like yep. cinematography, uh, it's really easy to get caught up in like landscapes and these beautiful swelling shots, which this movie, don't get me wrong, has a ton of and they're all beautiful. But it also needs to do the dirty work of the story. It, it needs to team up with the editing and, and have the right shot at the right moment. And it needs to, uh, you need to have a, a, a move in on somebody's face when they have a reaction shot. And scenes like this, the tension is just built so well both around the acting from these wonderful actors and the editing and cinematography all come together really well. And this is a really well-constructed scene. I was impressed by it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I like exactly what you said on, you know, what, with the editing and the camera movements because after he's apologized and, and the, like, the mob, I guess, bosses are leaving, the camera slowly pushes in on Connor, who's just sitting there both seething and... Also a little scared as to what goes on, but you can see it's a mix of anger and fear that's going through him. Fear of his father, but anger that he was forced to do that and kind of embarrass himself in front of these powerful people. Mm. And yeah, the, the tension that Mendez crafts in this scene and in numerous other scenes throughout this film. One it, of which we'll get to pretty soon. Yes, <laughs> um, is spectacular. There's a lot to like in this movie. So even though we're past the spoilers, we're deep into the spoiler section, again, if you haven't seen this movie, stop now and go watch it. I believe people were informed, three, two, one, go fuck yourself already yeah. at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that night, Connor murders Sullivan's wife, Annie, and younger son, Peter. At the same time, he sends Sullivan to ambush, he sends Sullivan to an ambush at a speakeasy. Sullivan realizes the setup, kills two men at the bar, and escapes. I'm going to cut there. Yes. That's a lot. That's a pretty substantial piece. Anyway. Yes, because there's two great, these basically I just told you two scenes and these two scenes are again done spectacularly. Yeah. I, if there's one thing in this section that maybe I, I shouldn't say I would change, but I didn't quite uh, resonate with me as much. I don't like how a good portion of Tom Hanks reaction to the murder of his family is off screen. I think we could learn a lot about this this real tough guy hitman character by seeing a little bit more of his reaction. 
Um, it's again, not, not a huge thing, but I, I would have liked to have seen, I'm not asking for a big dramatic Darth Vader. No, but you know, just some sort of on-screen reaction. I, I get that. I, but again, remember at this point, because the bond between Michael and Michael hasn't really been connected, we're still kind of seeing everything from his perspective when it comes to his father. That's very true. Right. So that's why when, when Connor, after Connor's killed his family and, Michael Sr. gets home, and we kind of cut ahead because I want to talk about the speakeasy scene. Yes. Um, but since we're here, let's, we'll talk about that. The camera stays on Michael Jr., who's sitting at the dinner table. And you hear Hanks run up the stairs, and then you hear a bone-chilling Hanks scream. Yes. And I, I, I agree, but I like that it was off camera. I like that you can it's muted, but you can still hear it, and you can hear his pain. And it's at this point... Um, that the two uh, are forced to become closer. And I don't think they really fully bond until after the diner scene, which is another tension-filled scene, which we'll get to shortly. There's so much great tension scenes in this movie. Like, this is... Mendez... I would actually... I would actually really... Thinking of it now, I, I would love to see Mendez do a horror film. Oh, yeah. Good call. Um, a, a lot of... Uh, that's how a lot of uh, famous directors get their start, too. Like, even even Spielberg had Jaws, and, I mean, uh, your boy Fincher did an alien movie, and, like, that's... Like, people love to hone their craft in horror before getting to these sorts of things, because mm-hmm. in horror, a lot of the appeal is the art of building tension. So, yeah, good call. Sam Mendes horror movie coming to a theater near you, 2022. Beauty. Um, so let's rewind just a smidge. Um, actually, just before we get to the speakeasy, I love, I always loved the scene where Michael Jr. comes home and Craig and Connor has just killed the family and they meet at the door. Yeah. And from Michael's point of view, he looks directly through the window of the door and he sees Connor remove the mask, revealing his face. And it looks like they're looking right at one another. But because of the lighting on the inside of the home... Connor looking through the glass window only sees his reflection and doesn't see Michael Jr. It's such a great little moment that at the time freaks you the fuck out. Yeah, no, I uh, I was holding my breath uh, at that moment too. I thought that shit was about to go down. I didn't exactly know how they were going to resolve that scene. I know. Another great tense moment put put in place by the editing and the cinematography. Yeah. Um, so we're going to rewind a little bit because we, we, we got a little ahead, but I want to talk about the speakeasy scene. And we actually go ahead, Sam, and then I'll 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 kick in afterwards. Okay, so the speakeasy scene is it was really well crafted, and I nerded out over it. Like <laughs> this is I just had such a, a a cinema snob boner for this scene. It was really awesome. So uh, when we walk into the speakeasy, it's it's a oneer, right? It's a it's a single take all the way to the back tunnels. There's or uh, or is there some edits? About- There's a, uh, oh okay. Well when. Again, we're talking about one of the things you love is how people's reputations precede them in the in the yes, movie. Yeah. So when Michael arrives at the speakeasy, there's a bouncer or a doorman at the front. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he figures out who he is... He starts asking him for a job and he, he's running his mouth a lot. And yeah, he, and you can sense that his reputation precedes him. From that moment, there's a couple edits in there, but from the moment they step through the door yeah. until they get to the office, I'm pretty sure it's a it's a one take. Which is 
so impressive. Again, we already talked about Spielberg, but Spielberg is one of the is one of the best at this sort of things. And Sam Man- Sam Mendes, I think, uh, is, is uh, showing a little bit of Spielbergian uh, touch on this. It's the it's the one take that you don't really realize is a one take, and it's just to sort of uh, put you in the moment of the scene a little bit more. Yep. It's not this big flashy like. When we watched uh, whatever that Best Picture nominee was that had Atonement. When we watched Atonement, it's, oh. not like, it's not like a big sweeping, like grandly orchestrated five minute one take. Look at how fucking good I am at directing. It's putting you in the moment of the scene. It's just a little one minute long one take, which is not easy to do. But no. I, I was, I was thoroughly impressed at that point. And we haven't even gotten to the meat of this scene. Yes, <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, and just before we move on, just so you know, uh, Spielberg was actually originally attached to, to direct this film. It seems like a very Spielberg-y move, uh, movie to me. I yeah. mean, I've brought up his name a few times already. Yeah, I think if I if I remember correctly, I think his plate was just a little too full because around here, I think would have been Minority Report and something and uh, Catch Me If You Can. Oh yeah, yeah. So. I'm fine with that. <laughs> we have to find an excuse to watch Catch Me If You Can. That's a beautiful movie. Consider it done. <laughs> Consider it done. We will add that. Yes, def- 100, 100%. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we get into the office of, uh, and the character's name who played the speakeasy owner. I don't, I can't remember, but uh, we kind of glanced over it. Uh, Connor gave a letter for Sullivan to deliver to this man um, because he owes money. And so Sullivan gives him uh, his the letter and he's he's asked the do you have the character's name no nah, nah. I couldn't find it okay um, he's asked the the bouncer to stay in the room with him while Sullivan's here um, Sullivan's gun has been taken from him so he is unarmed and the speakeasy owner has put a gun on the desk in front of him and covered it with a magazine which is such a stupid thing. I, I I have to admit that I didn't exactly love that uh, having the having the gun hidden but not really hidden and having mm-hmm. Tom Hanks see it. I I thought that was just a little bit too dumb for yeah. this character to do. I, even though he's not exactly set up to be a genius, I, I just thought that was a little bit too stupid. I totally get it, but on the same side, I'm like, if they don't do it that way, I don't know how he survives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if that's, that's not if that's yeah. not set up, then yeah. the movie's over. <laughs> but I, I totally get it. So with the speakeasy's jazz music uh, blaring in the background, which of, again I love, I figured that's probably one of the reasons why you like this scene so love much. It. Again, like we've said, the dialogue in this movie, while good at times, isn't the highlight. It's the nonverbal performances that really tell the story throughout this film. And it's here as the speakeasy owner is reading this note that he was just handed by Sullivan, and he reads it, and you can see he's not. He's like, did I read this right? And he reads it again, and he's so confused, and he's looking around, unsure what to do. And this is where Sullivan Sr.'s years of doing this job and his natural inclination to this job and his instincts kick in. He knows that something's wrong. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know, maybe the, the, <laughs> the irony of the speakeasy's death is funny to me because the very thing with uh, for those that are unsure speakeasies were illegal hideaways where jazz music was almost kind of illegal was played Mm. and it's because of this jazz music that causes him to die yeah because it's the bass that's kind of shaking and 
slightly moving the magazine to reveal the gun underneath, which allows Hanks to grab it in time and kill him and the mob boss, at which point he grabs a note, which is literally just says, kill Sullivan and all debts are forgiven. Yeah. And Sullivan now knows that Connor set him up, and then he realizes that his family is in danger. So he leaves, obviously, quite abruptly to go into the scene that we discussed previously about his family being murdered. I guess we did sort of skip ahead on that one. But yeah. Yeah, the uh, the speakeasy scene, the conclusion of it, um, the reveal of the note uh, was a crazy... I, I think I have written in my notes, actually, just, damn! <laughs> <laughs> With about 14 A's. <laughs> With uh, the Kill Sullivan and all debts are paid line in there. Yeah, I, uh, I was riveted I, I riveted is the wrong word but i was uh this movie had my attention at this point uh, nice <laughs> this uh this definitely drew me in it's a really good reveal especially again it's the editing i like that we find out what the note says when hanks finds out yep and the editing is just cutting between hanks and the owner and then the letter and hanks and the owner and it, the editing just really ratchets up the tension as it does in this movie and then when you finally get that like because you sense with Hanks something is wrong. Yep. Something is definitely not wrong, or something is definitely not right here. And then, uh, yeah, we find out when he does. It's a super well constructed scene. Beauty. And when uh, skipping back ahead to when um, Mike Senior comes home to find Mike Junior still alive, they leave the house and uh, <clears throat> and Hanks says to his son, "It's another line that I love. This house is not our home anymore. It's just an empty building." Mm-hmm. Um, chilling and so pragmatic of them so now they head to chicago where sullivan's hoping to speak with al capone or al capone's right-hand man frank nitty these two are obviously real people um so this is kind of based in real life the roonies and um sullivan's are loosely based on some real people as well i think the roonies um I think their last name was Looney, if I'm not mistaken. I, I wouldn't be exactly sure. I know it's that's probably one of the reasons why they changed it. Um, and probably I, for safety of remaining family members, too. <laughs> yes. And I can't remember who Sullivan was based on, but they're very, very, very loosely based. But obviously, Al Capone, every, I'm actually curious, would anybody not know who Al Capone is? I can't imagine that yeah. if, if they don't know who Capone is, they're not the kind of person who will watch this movie. Very true. Yeah. And then Frank Nitty isn't somebody that I knew uh, all that well, but Frank Nitty is is a real person. He was Al Capone's right-hand man. And then after Capone went to jail, Frank Nitty was in for a bit. He came out, and Frank Nitty actually took over for Al Capone. Blah, 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 blah. So um, Sullivan travels to Chicago to meet up with them in the hopes of bartering his employment for them to just turn a blind eye to what he has to do. It's here on this trip where I have written down in my notes because they have so many shots of these old vehicles driving on big barren highways or back roads. I said, come on, the shots in this film with several (laughs) exclamation marks. There's like, again, play the drinking game and you're going to get fucking hammered because I cannot stop talking about how beautiful this movie is shot. There's aerial shots, there's close-up shots, there's shots of the camera on the car itself driving down these roads. I would love to see just all the stuff they didn't use 
like it would just be almost like a, a museum of film shots that were just gorgeous from this movie alone. Um, in Chicago, let's see. Okay, here we go. Uh, Capone's underboss, Frank Nitti, rejects Sullivan's proposals before informing Rooney of the meeting. Rooney reluctantly allows Nitti to dispatch assassin Harlan McGuire, who is also a voyeuristic crime scene photographer, to kill Sullivan. Mm. Is that all we want to tackle for right now? I'll go there because where okay. we go ne- we're, we're, next is the diner. Okay. So I guess it would be logical to talk about uh, Maguire then. Yes. So this is a fucking awesome villain. I mean, <laughs> he's he's totally underutilized if you ask me, but he is a bad motherfucker. He, yeah. <laughs> he fucks some people up in this movie. He is a sadist and he, he's just pure evil. Yeah. And I loved him. He was so weird. <laughs> That's such an interesting touch to put on your character that uh, he enjoys taking photos of all the people that he's killed. I can't believe I haven't seen that in a movie before. Like, that's just... It It just felt like such a real person, even though this person was a complete fucking psychopath. Well, he's, all, like, he's also... Well, he does enjoy taking pictures of the people he's killed, but he also does it. That is his profession. Like, yes. He's a crime scene photographer. Yeah. When, well, when we meet him, he, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he suffocates someone who he's already shot or stabbed. No, or? no, no. He, right. he didn't. He was just there to remember the police officers. Right, there. Yeah. He had nothing to do with it. Right, he was yeah. just there to be a crime scene photographer. And as he's setting up the shot, he realizes the person is not dead. Yeah. So he goes and he looks, he looks around. And he's like, no cops around. <laughs> guess i'll go kill this guy because if i i've already set it up if this guy survives my pictures are worthless yeah so he goes and kills him so the pictures that he takes were worth something so fucking creepy yeah this scene and he, he does suffocate him right or yeah he, he suffocates yeah. him with his handkerchief yeah fuck it's a it's a pretty uncomfortable death scene <laughs> yeah while a knife is protruding from his chest yes yes <laughs> um it's that's our introduction to McGuire, who we actually haven't mentioned is Jude Law. Yes. Yes. He who, looks different in this movie. I genuinely, I, I think the first note I took of him, I think I referred to him as that Jude Law looking motherfucker, but, <laughs> but he looks so much different in 2002. Yeah, they really, uh, actually I have a note on that here, um, to create a villain that could challenge the physically imposing Tom Hanks, uh, Sam Mendes wanted Jude Law to seem rodent-like. Yeah, well, he was very, uh, very rat-ish. Yeah, the teeth, the nails, the kind of hunched over effect, and then they kind of shaved, like, the top slash back of his head. Yeah. Yeah, it was super fucking creepy. (laughs) He looks like he is creepy as fuck. He is. And if you want to... Sorry. If you want to add to his creepiness factor in real life, um, the scene after he murders this guy who's... Uh, got a knife sticking out of him. We see him in his apartment taking the phone call from Frank Nitti. And there's all these photographs on the wall of either probably people that he's killed or some of the crime scene photographs that he has. If you'd like to know, Maguire is based on a real person. Uh, not that he was... Uh, I'm, I don't think he was based... Maguire's based on a real person in that there was a... Uh, a really well-known and well-respected crime scene photographer who took really great pictures of the dead. He was not a hitman, um, but those photographs on the wall are the real photographs that that person that he's based on took. That is some crazy film nerd stuff right there. I <laughs> yeah. love it. Um, 
so let's get into yet another great scene. Um, McGuire tracks Sullivan and his son to a roadside diner, but fails to kill Sullivan. Realizing McGuire's intentions, Sullivan escapes through the bathroom and punctures McGuire's car tire before fleeing. So, the diner scene. Another super well-edited, well-shot scene. God damn it. <laughs> yes. The tension in this scene, again, is so spectacular. It's the double entendres that are being used, the the instincts that Mike Sr. has for his surroundings, and basically people like him, is astounding. Mm. And... I love how it's shot. I love how Mike Sr. escapes. It's just such a well-crafted scene. And, and yeah, and Jude Law is on full creep meter here. Yeah, uh, the, the line that sort of gave me chills when he, when he tells him, I shoot the dead. Is what, yeah. yeah, and that line just kind of sent shivers down my spine. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> um... This is the moment that uh, Mike Sr. and Mike Jr., the bond really forces, and this is where it takes a nice lighthearted turn. They escape with their lives, and for Mike Sr. to get the attention he needs and to get the mob to kind of do what he wants, he's going to travel around to these small little cities where Capone is hiding his money in these banks. He can't do it alone, so he needs a partner. So he teaches his son how to drive. Um, speaking of which, Sam, do you know how to drive a manual? Uh, I do not. Okay, so you would have been just as helpful as his son. I would have been potentially less helpful than his son. Um, as a note, um, for the bank robbery sequences, uh, Tyler... Uh, Hoekland, Michael Sullivan Jr., had to learn how to drive for real. Um, so something that he was only too happy to do. Uh, he mastered it pretty easily, but just to be on the safe side, there was a stunt driver sitting in the back with his own controls as well. But Tyler did a lot of the actual driving that you do see him do in the movie. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? So all I need to do to learn to drive a manual is become an actor. Yes. Yes. Um, but it's a really, it's a lot of fun and cute. The bank, rob scene, the bank robbery scenes are really kind of like adorable. Yeah. They're super adorable. This is, this is where Tom Hanks excels. This is a little step outside of his character, but I think it's because he's creating a bond with his son. And this is where the movie has a lot of fun. The score really ups that. It's really lighthearted and joyful. And there's a couple little comedic moments in here where his son doesn't stop properly. But my favorite one is when his son's driving up real slowly. And he's like, don't worry. There's no rush. <laughs> We're only robbing banks. <laughs> yeah, I think this, this sequence is so effective because when you cut away everything else, this movie really is just about the father-son relationship. Yes. And there's a lot of themes of, of fatherhood, uh, both between Hanks and his son and him and uh, his adopted father figure. Um, so a lot of this movie is about fatherhood. So when these scenes, when we start seeing their bond grow, it uh, it's definitely uh, well-placed in the movie, I guess. It, it sort of uh, flows with the action of it very well. They're... Their relationship grows as the tension in the movie grows, and it's uh, 
it, it starts to become quite touching their relationship together. But yeah, them robbing banks together and him stalling out and yeah. <laughs> not knowing how to use the clutch. And, uh, I definitely got chuckles out of that. And uh, yeah, reminded me of me. <laughs> <laughs> and what's what's a clutch do? It clutches. That's yes, right. It clutches. A clutch, <laughs> a clutch clutches. That's right. That's a great line. <laughs> um, so it ends with them having a bunch of money and a really great comedic moment for me is they're enjoying kind of the fruits of their labor, having some pie. And Michael Jr. goes, so when do I get my share of the money? How much do you want? And he sits there and thinks, he's like, $200. Immediately, okay. <laughs> and then this awkward silence, could I have had more? You'll, You'll never, never know. know. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I laughed out loud at that part. Really good delivery. Yeah, great, <laughs> great scene. So funny. You, and you see, like, when he gets the $200 at first, he's so excited. And then the realization... And then he asks the question. That's like the most money he could ever imagine having. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, so Sullivan bonds with his son and discovers from the ledgers that Connor has been has been embezzling from his father for years, using the name of dead men, including McGovern. As the Sullivans depart, oh wow. Okay. Oh oh wow. Sorry. Totally. Totally. Totally missed something there. My apologies. I skipped over. Go, Manny. I, I skipped over a whole um, a whole paragraph. My apologies. So let's jump back. Um, in reaction to the order to hit, Sullivan begins robbing banks that hold Capone's money, hoping to trade it for Connor. Sullivan is impeded when the mob withdraws its money, so he visits Rooney's accountant Alexander Rance at his hotel. Um, played by Dylan Baker, who I love as a character actor. Um, the encounter is a setup. Um, with Rance stalling Sullivan until McGuire enters with a shotgun. In the ensuing crossfire, Rance is killed, McGuire is injured by flying glass shards, and Sullivan escapes with the ledgers. But as he leaves, McGuire shoots him in his left arm. Sorry, I completely skipped over that. This scene, uh, I, I enjoy it, but it definitely lacks the tension that the others had. Yeah. But it's a nice setup, and again, really shows off the creepiness of McGuire. Um, and Dr. Connors from Spider-Man is a really good character. In yes, this. <laughs> and, that, and that's Dylan Baker, who yep. I mentioned. Um, he's, <coughs> oh gosh. You know, holes it, over there, Manny? I kind of do. I got a fisherman's friend right here. Oh, there you go. I should probably have another one. Uh, this, it's actually McGuire that accidentally ends up killing Rance, um, but it is important. Uh, the, the scene sets up Sullivan getting the ledgers and discovering that it was Connor who had been taking the money, as I'd said private previously. Um, this scene is is okay. Like I said, it's it really lacks the fantastic tension of the other ones, but it's needed uh, twofold. One, uh, so uh, Sullivan Sr. can find out where the money's been going, and two, to set up the injury he receives after getting shot. Yeah. Then we'll go back to where I just was. When his father collapses from his wound... Michael Jr. drives his father to a farm where a childless elderly couple help him recover. Sullivan bonds with his son and discovers from the ledgers that Connor's been embezzling from his father for years, using the names of dead men, including McGovern. Um, I think we can touch on it here. I think this actually shows the difference between back then and today. Back then... A child could show up with a shot man and ask for help and would receive it. Yes. I think nowadays, if a child showed up with a shot man on a farm, uh, they would call the cops. 
Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, like without hesitation, they would call the cops. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, probably know that elderly couple didn't even have a phone, so maybe that wasn't an option. They just decided they were going to help this kid anyways. Yeah, I'd say probably not. Um, but I, I do like... I kind of have a nostalgic affinity to those old days where people actually cared about their neighbors in this way or even strangers as these people were. I like unless they were a minority. Yeah. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. Um I like this scene. It really starts and really starts to solidify the bond between father and son and uh the uh and it's it's while he's recovering that Sullivan starts to go through the ledgers and realizes that it's Connor that's been stealing money from his family for so long. Yeah. Um I'm glad that they didn't stick around this farm too long because this is where it definitely could have dragged. Um, I think they spent enough time there in the film, which is maybe two minutes. Yeah, not a lot. Right, which is which is great. The only problem with them not spending a lot of time is it doesn't allow the payoff at the end to really pay off. I, I have that written down. The, I wrote, Gift would have more weight if we knew the farmer's. Yes. Yeah. So if we if we got to know these people at all, or if we got any sort of connection or any sort of scene getting to know who they are, uh, we might have had a little bit uh, more catharsis from from them leaving them the money. But yeah, it, I mean, it's not what really this movie's about. So I have no problem with uh, leaving in haste from this farm here. Yep. Um, as the Sullivans depart, they give the couple uh, much of the stolen money. Uh, Sullivan confronts Rooney with the information while they attend mass. So this is Sullivan has driven back to, I can't even remember the name of the city. Was it Rockfield or I had it at the top? Uh, Rock Island. Rock Island. I wonder, is it actually oh. an island? Probably not, I guess. Hey, Sounds like a pretty cool place. Right. I want to live there. Um, so they meet in, they, while they attend mass, they're in the basement of a church. And this is a... Uh, really great, a really great scene um, between Newman and Hanks, and where Hanks is, well, Newman's telling him he's like, I, you're asking me to give up my son, and I just can't do that. And I don't think, unless your son is maybe Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't think any parent would. Uh, Rock Island does indeed appear to be an island, Manny. I'm uh, getting the getting the info on that for you now. Population approximately thirty eight thousand. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. And we learned something today on the podcast. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. We were talking about a movie. Yes. Um, Rooney already knew about the embezzlement and that Connor was likely to die if not by Sullivan's hand, then by the Chicago outfit. Once Rooney dies, he still refuses to give up his son. He encourages Sullivan to leave with his son. Like I said, the basement scene is great between Newman and Hanks. Two pros really doing it. Nobody chewing scenery, just two people having a great conversation. A deep conversation about fatherhood and sons and what you're willing to give up and what you're not willing to give up. I always forget how good this scene is because it's followed by one of the most amazing scenes in cinema history. One of the most, in regards to the way it's shot. Because following this is the Rain Massacre. Yes. And I cannot begin to adequately describe on how beautiful that this scene is shot. Please try. I want to I hear you rant about this. <laughs> this 
is one of my all-time favorite, and this is something I alluded to earlier in this film. This scene will be one of the contending scenes for me in Most Beautifully Shot in History. It is... It's heightened because it's filmed silently, just with just the score. It's just a scene... Well, it's not just a scene. Um, late at night, Rooney is leaving what appears to be a diner of some sort. He's being guarded by his usual flock of bodyguards and he's heading out to his car and it is pouring rain. The kind of rain you only see in movies. And Vancouver. And Vancouver. Like the the raindrops are like the size of your head. Yeah. It's lit beautifully. And then I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it happens first. You just see, again, this is all silent. The only sounds you hear are the score, this beautiful score, haunting, beautiful, not violent, not loud and bombastic, this huge, haunting, beautiful score by Thomas Newman. And then you see one of, <coughs> sorry, you see one of the guards basically, and his umbrella, basically explode in gunfire. And then they cut to the view that these people would have down this road. And all you see is a muzzle flash going off. And this cam- now the camera starts to move and it starts to pan around Rooney. Starts on one side, pans around. As a character comes into view of the screen, that person is lit up by gunfire. All of these people around Rooney are dying violently, de- violent deaths from this gunfire, but he's not being touched. It shows the marksmanship and the efficiency of, of what you assume is Sullivan, who you haven't seen yet. And the camera just continues to pan around, pan around, and all these people are killed until it stops. And you're looking right at Newman, who's just standing there in the rain, and everyone around him is dead. He slowly turns around to look down the street, and from out of the darkness comes Tom Hanks holding a Thompson submachine gun. I think this is where the score stops. And he just says, I'm glad it's you. It cuts over to Tom Hanks's face with a look of pain and suffering on his face. He pauses and then shoots his father figure. And they, sh- they do it beautifully. They don't cut back to Newman being shot. It's all focused in on the pain and anguish that Hanks is doing what he has to do. It's so fucking beautiful. <laughs> Man, that was great. I was I was I was invested in that. Um but yeah, I mean the the scene as a whole, of course, I was uh I was thoroughly impressed by too. Probably not to the extent you were, but it would be just about impossible for that to be the case. Um but yeah, it was a very very heartbreaking moment and you felt the emotion behind it, of course. I really wish um for those that hadn't seen it, I really wish people could experience this on the big screen like I did for the first time. I honestly can't describe on how beautifully shot this is. It's lit so well. That camera movement with the use of the score only. I honestly don't think I I don't believe that this scene would have had the impact on me and the way it resonates in my mind and it always has. This has always been one of the most beautifully shot scenes in my mind because of the way that the use of the score and the camera movement is is together in unison 
if they had filmed it without the use of the score and went with the actual sound of these people getting shot, maybe people yelling, I don't think it would have carried the emotional weight for me that it does. It's so beautiful. Because no, this, this scene in particular doesn't want to fetishize the violence of the scene. This, this scene is not about the violence and it's not about the massacre. It's about this bond being broken between father and son. That's what this scene is supposed to show. The, everything else is just you know, uh, a means to get there for an emotional moment. Yep. Um, so this is where now with Rooney being dead, Nitty has no reason to continue to protect Connor. So he reveals Connor's location to Sullivan. And again, the gorgeousness of this shot, it all starts. I, I love the, the precision and the focus that Hanks has in this scene. He just walks in the elevator. The bodyguards there know that he's now allowed. They know that Connor's about to be killed. They let him in the elevator. And when he comes out of the elevator, there's a bird's eye camera view as it walks. And obviously the, the set has no ceiling because the camera starts above Hanks. And as he's walking down the hallway, the camera slowly pans over top of him and down in front of him. It's such a fucking beautiful shot. If this had not won Best Cinematography, I would have stopped watching movies. <laughs> I highly doubt that. I know, right? <laughs> this is, honestly, this is one of my all-time favorite movies with great cinematography. And actually, off the top of my head, really the only ones that come to mind for me for cinematography would be this, Blade Runner 2049, and maybe Sicario. It's so deliciously gorgeous. Um, and I love, again, like there's no, there's no big action scene. He walks in, shoots Connor in the bathtub, and walks out. And I love as he walks out, he bumps the door, and the mirror on the door slowly turns to reveal that Connor's dead. It's fantastic. Um, sorry, Sam, I've been rambling on. I know you have, but that's why I'm here. <laughs> this, this is why we're here. This is why we're in person, and so I can listen to you in person. Go on a rant. It is perfect. I have. I really have nothing of value to add. That like, there's nothing I could touch on, even if I wanted to, that you haven't uh, done already yourself. But. That's it, okay. I mean, this is obviously a movie that uh, is near and dear to you and uh, affects you. So I've, I've got no problem, <laughs> Mr. Manny Manuel, with a, with a rant or two. So it looks like all is right in the world with the Sullivans. They, uh, they, they meet back up. Um, I, we didn't really mention that uh, Mike Jr. Or sorry, Mike Sr. had left Mike Jr. behind, I believe, in a hotel yeah. or somewhere. Um, with, a, with a note. With a note, um, which I don't believe the note. I don't. Is, I don't think we see what's in the note. Yeah, <clears throat> it's most likely a, a like a death note. But mm -hmm. uh, our hero survives, and they head out to uh, their aunt's place on uh, on the lake. I believe it's on the lake. Probably, yeah, must be on the lake. Uh, side note: This beach that they're at looks very familiar to me, and I'm wondering if it's what I think it is. It to me, this beach it, it could just look exactly similar but it looks a lot like the beach at Ziwatanejo at the end of uh <laughs> at the end of Shawshank Redemption am I crazy is that just me I can understand why you think that way it's definitely not it's definitely not definitely okay. not because right. the the beach in Ziwatanejo from my understanding yeah. is was filmed down in the in around Mexico area okay this was filmed up by the Great Lakes area okay 
Pardon me. Wow, I, nice polo. I, I thought if that was true, that that would probably be a big nerd moment for you. But Huge uh, nerd I figured nerd. if that was true, you would also probably have known that, and you would have brought it up yourself. No, <laughs> I, I'm. I would say I'm about ninety nine percent sure that it's not the same. Beach. I can't imagine that it is. Um, so they go to Aunt Sarah's beach house in perdition, which funny is only mentioned. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's only mentioned twice throughout the whole movie. The name, the name of where they're going. Yeah. yeah. Um, see a town on the shore of Lake Michigan. This is beautiful, quiet, serene. Mike Sr. goes in to check in the house where he thinks Sarah is. Mike Jr. stays down the beach. And Mike Sr. is just looking out this beautiful view of this window. Uh, at this point, Sam, how are you feeling about the movie? Were you, were you thinking, you're like, like, what a great ending. Yeah, it was all wrapped up neat and tidy in a bow. And I slowly closed my note- notebook and thought, <laughs> nothing to see here, guys. It's all good. And then the shot kept lingering on Hanks. And it lingered a little bit more. And it lingered a little bit more. And I thought, boy, this final shot of Tom Hanks sure is taking a long time. <laughs> you're like, what is this, Lord of the yeah. Rings Return of the King? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, the movie doesn't actually have that happy of an ending. <laughs> uh, as we're enjoying this lingering shot on Hanks, wondering if this is we're going to see six endings like in Return of the King, yes. his uh, chest explodes, and not from a chest burster from an alien. This is not David Fincher. This no, is... <laughs> no, it is uh, our good friend McGuire has been camped out here and blows two large holes in our friend's chest. Yes, Uh Definitely uh, soils the mood a bit. <laughs> it puts a damper on things and rains on our parade. But yeah, I, uh, I as if Maguire, by the way, didn't look creepy enough, they decided <laughs> to add a couple of villainous scars to his face. So bravo, Sam Mendes, for making Jude Law look like the creepiest person on the planet. Yeah, an incredibly handsome man. Yeah. Like, Jude Law is handsome like yep. that's not even an opinion that's fact dude him as young dumbledore in uh, the crimes of grindelwald was the best part of that movie because he <laughs> was just objectively attractive <laughs> and yeah and sam mendes is like let's see how ugly and creepy we can make this man and they fucking hit He's it out of the park gross. yeah he is <laughs> disgusting um prior to these shots ringing out um did did the death surprise you yes because uh I didn't remember, like, when Maguire came back into the scene, I had forgotten. I had forgotten that they hadn't wrapped up his <sighs> plot line. So, I, and, of course, that was probably the intention with, yes. with, the, with it uh, being written this way. So, yeah, I had, Maguire had left my mind completely. So, when his, when Tom Hanks' chest explodes, I was like, I was counting off everyone. I was like, Dan- <laughs> Daniel Craig is dead. I was like, well, who, who was even left? And then Jude fucking Law comes into frame, just being all rodenty and creepy. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, you motherfucker, you spoiled my happy Hollywood ending. But. Yeah, and so as Sullivan is laying there bleeding to death, uh, Maguire, being the creepy fuck face he is, <laughs> starts setting up his camera because he wants to take these beautiful pictures. Yep. And as he's dying, uh, old Michael Jr. comes in with a gun. And I remember in my mind... The first time I saw him, I'm like, shoot him. Yeah. Please shoot him. <laughs> Please shoot him. And it's it's kind of, it's almost, as sad as it is, it's almost kind of like a, it's a Hollywood trope or a movie trope where an innocent character is forced to kill someone that's either harmed or hurt or killed somebody that they care about. 
and they pause and they pause and they build up that tension. And I was begging him to pull that trigger and he doesn't. He's killed by Michael Sr., who has pulled out his gun and shot him, which preserves Michael's innocence, which is what Mike Sr. has been fighting for this whole time. And I love that it went that way. Yeah, that, that was such a touching ending for me. Yeah. It, it actually really affected me because I, I thought that I, I was right there. This movie had me around the tip of its finger, by the way. Like everything they wanted me to think, I thought. So when they wanted me to think that Mike Jr. is going to be the one pulling the trigger, I absolutely thought it. When that shot rings off, I thought Mike Jr. shot him. But yep. it's it's Tom Hanks. It's Mike Sr. who uh, who preserves his son's innocence, as you said. He uh, you know gives him the gift of... You know, it's it's one last act of of love between father and son. Oh, I'm That's, gonna cry. Yeah, I know it's it's a beautiful <laughs> moment. It's one last act of love between father and son. It's what we've been waiting for this entire movie, and yeah. this fucked up situation has finally given them some sort of bond between each other and some sort of moment. Yeah, man, what a what a wonderful scene. Yeah, it truly is. Um, you know what? By the way, I'm sorry to uh, cut you off yeah. as you as you're about to get going there, but uh, just going back a hair at the beginning of the scene. You know what this really reminds me of now that I think about it? What's that? Mark Wahlberg in The Departed. How you just oh you just forget he exists, and I won't spoil The Departed for uh, for anybody else. But uh, the movie wants you to forget that Mark Wahlberg exists, and then yes. he suddenly comes back. <laughs> that's that's an excellent excellent analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess without spoiling anything, we can't say anything. Yeah. Even me saying that is a bit of a spoiler, but <laughs> totally. you know, whatever. Total spoiler. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's it's really it's it's great. Um he he uh he dies in his son's arms and uh mourning his father's death, uh Michael returns to the elderly farm couple. Um and this is where I was talking about the time there could have been used a little bit better because it doesn't quite pay off. But there is a scene earlier on where, very early on, where Mike Sr. Um, goes to try and find Connor and runs into one of the mob bosses and he tells his son, go to father so-and-so, not father so-and-so, yeah. right? So Mike Jr. realizes that he can never return to his home. Um, it will never be safe there. And I like... And that's why him returning to this elderly couple is basically kind of the only thing that makes sense. He can't stay with his family, his Aunt Sarah, whose house they're at. And so him going to live with this elderly couple makes sense in regards to that. I just, and that's why the scene earlier with him could have been a little bit longer to show that the Sullivans and this elderly couple did have some type of bond that would have allowed Michael to think of going back there. That's my, that's my I, only in this otherwise brilliant movie, that's really my only complaint. But where else would he have gone? That would have made sense. Yeah, no, I totally agree that this relationship is the one in the movie that probably should have been fleshed out a little bit more, uh, purely for storytelling purposes. But that's that's a, a sort of small blemish right yeah. at the end. I didn't find it unbelievable that he yeah. went there because it, there's really nowhere else he could have went. This family's definitely got to prove just how helpful they are, though. Like, you're talking about how in the 30s you could show up with a guy who has a bullet lodged in him. How about raising a fucking kid? Yeah. How about a guy just showing up on your doorstep and just, hey, do you mind feeding and clothing me for the next 10 years? Well, they don't really have to feed. They left them a shit ton of money. That's very true, actually. And he probably still has most of it left, mm -hmm. right? I, the only... <laughs> if you want... 
I always like to be a little nitpicky about ridiculous things. Yes. I always found it fascinating. Why did Mike get out on the road instead of driving the car up yeah. the driveway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of he tough. gets out of the car and then walks, which seems to be, I would probably say a good, I don't know, 500 meters. Yeah. If not, maybe a kilometer long driveway. <laughs> Why would you get out? Drive up there, son. Maybe, maybe gas ran out just at that moment. Oh, that's true. Exactly. <laughs> maybe the clutch stopped clutching. Who knows? We'll never know. Um, and then the the last thing he says in voiceover, uh, Michael states that he's never held a gun since the fatal encounter between McGuire and his father. Uh, I love that. Um, and then uh, when asked if Sullivan was a good or bad man, he replies, he was my father. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say the epilogue is good. I don't know if I necessarily needed all of it, mm-hmm. um, especially the line that you just said, the... Um, never uh, holding a gun? Yeah, the never holding a gun again. I just found that a little bit superfluous. Like, that's yep. sort of the point of the movie, is that that moment is is giving us hope for Michael, and it's going to preserve his innocence. Like, yep. I don't necessarily need Michael from the future then saying, yeah, and I never held a gun again. Like, I don't need that sort of confirmation. Totally but, fair. Totally fair. But again, small nitpick there. Yep. Um, Sam... Yeah. Final thoughts. Or wait, favorite scene. We'll do favorite scene first. We'll do favorite scene first? Yep. Uh, it's going to be the speakeasy. That's a, that's an easy one for me. Um, it was just incredibly well constructed right from the single take as he's walking in uh, right up to the note reveal is uh, is pretty pretty spectacular for me. And uh, Manny, what is your favorite scene and why is it the massacre in the rain? (laughs) (laughs) It is the rain massacre scene. And if you want to know why it's my favorite scene, go back about 15 minutes and listen to me (laughs) blather on and on without Sam interrupting me at all uh, on why I enjoyed the rain massacre scene. Beautiful. Final thoughts on Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition was a movie that was not even remotely on my radar. It wasn't something that I was aware of. Even as big a fan as Tom Hanks as I am, this was not something that I was aware of from him really at all. Um, So going in blind and coming out after one single watch, I was quite thoroughly impressed. I I think upon rewatch, maybe some of the themes of fatherhood uh, might resonate a little bit more with me. Um, I, I can't think of anything particularly wrong with this movie right now, but I think all of the pieces were there, and I, th- I think if I was in a little bit more, um, a little bit more of an open mindset while I was watching it, I, I think it would have uh, resonated with me a little bit more. I, I, I think I had a lot on my mind, both like packing for the trip here. Yep. I think I had just gotten back from a late shift at, at work as well. So there are some moments like that where the, you can be watching a perfectly okay movie and just not really feel it. So I, I think, I think upon rewatch, this movie could probably uh, be updated or upgraded uh, a lot in my mind. But for now, I don't think I really gave it the proper attention and respect it deserved. Which awesome. I'm sad about. Awesome. So you think you probably will end up rewatching it again? On I, your own? I think I will for sure. Wicked, yeah. wicked. Um, for me, this has been Road to Perdition is is was easily one of my favorite films of 2002. Like I said in our uh, Oscar retrospective for that year, this would have been one of my fest- five Best Picture nominees. It's, I like I said, get ready for that drink. It's one of the most gorgeously shot films I've ever seen. I absolutely love everything about this. Like I said, for me, the only weak part is, uh, at times, Tyler Hawkland's performance. At It's not bad, Um but there's just a few times he's a little weaker, but he's 
surrounded by Hanks, Newman, Craig, and Jude Law, all basically at the top of their game. Yeah. Um, and he's surrounded by a director who is at the top of his game at this time with this movie and coming off of American Beauty. He's got a cinematographer who is a three-time Oscar winner and 10-time nominee, giving us one of the most gorgeous send-offs we'll ever see until, what, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Um, It's just an absolutely spectacular film that I believe is under a lot of people's radars, and they're unaware of it. And I'm really hoping that people will check this film out and revisit it because it is absolutely stunning from start to finish. That being said, Sam, your score out of five. Oh, man. I don't know. I've, I I really, really want to give this a four. I don't know if I can just yet, again, because it's a movie that has a lot of moving parts and a lot of subtleties in it that I don't think I really took the time to fully appreciate just mm-hmm. yet. I'm going to tentatively give it a three with yep. the intention of rewatching and upgrading that. Perfect. Uh, this is a five for me. This is one of my favorite films of this year. It continues to be a movie that really resonates with me. And actually, in all honesty, I think this might be the first time I've watched it since becoming a father. Mm-hmm. And the final scene, uh, it, it hit home pretty hard. Um, it didn't quite make me cry, um, but it definitely hit. And uh, I'm... I've always I've always loved this movie since the moment it came out, um, so it's a it's a five for me pretty pretty easily. Beautiful. Uh, and for those of you keeping score, uh, I did predict Sam to give it a four. Yeah, I thought that you probably would have, and I I, I wanted you to be right so bad, yeah, Manny. But but I'm pretty sure that when you rewatch it, it you, will I, it, it will likely become it a four. will definitely become yeah. a four. I I definitely think this is a, a, a Sam four movie for sure. Yes. Uh, so before we head out, uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes if you'll follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. Also, uh, like and follow us on Facebook. Uh, Mama, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. Next week, we possibly will be having a bonus episode it's we're looking about 90 95 percent sure that we will if not i've actually already oh right next week is avengers it's, it's, yeah, some some small franchise is releasing a very niche art film yes uh, that, a relatively low budget yeah we're checking out this uh, little uh, little independent film called uh Avengers? Yeah. Avengers? I think that's how you say it. Yeah. yeah. Avengers Endgame. I think it might be French. Avengers. Yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to be checking out of it. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Avengers Endgame uh, and giving you uh, our nerdy review of that one. Uh, Sam, anything to say before we uh, say goodbye? Uh, just that it's been an honor and a pleasure to sit in the same room as you. Finally, yes, yes. it's been uh, it's been a long time coming. It's been a year. The last uh, we looked it up before we recorded last episode that we uh, that we recorded in the same room was episode nine. That was nine. Blade Runner and Blade Runner uh, twenty forty nine. <sighs> so yeah, what it's good, been what a good one to go out on though. Yeah, that was a great one. So it's been oh god, how many episodes? It's been like forty five episodes since yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, it's been a been a little bit god damn that's yeah. fantastic um as a reminder uh please stay for the uh post credits uh, scene where we uh will be discussing uh, game of thrones uh episode eight season nope nope season eight episode two there you go blah, 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 <laughs> blah, 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 blah. um but for those of you that are not watching game of thrones uh in just a few moments here you can just uh, turn this podcast off so for the samuel and manual movie podcast i'm manny manual 
And I'm Sam Reimer. Adios! And welcome to the post credit scene on the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast. We are going to be discussing Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode Number 2, which is called A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Sam. Yes, with with a little bit of editing magic, I have both traveled two <laughs> days into the future and about 600 kilometers. Yeah, we are sadly no longer face-to-face in yeah. person with one another, but thanks to the magic of Skype, we can still enjoy each other's company. Ah, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, uh, Night of the Seven Kingdom premiered uh, this past Sunday, and I, I've kind of been thinking about it a lot. Did you get a chance to watch it a second time, by the way? I did. I watched it today in prep for this. Okay, beautiful. I watched it last night as well. So, um, yeah, we. so the episode opens on uh, Jamie being basically scolded by all of Winterfell, um, <laughs> and in, in this meeting, they basically decide that uh, he's trustworthy. Do you have any thoughts on this scene? Um, it's decent. It was a decent start. Once again, Bran is so fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> he just stares off into nothing frequently. Oh, At least he made his way out of the courtyard in this episode. Yeah. You. Are... <laughs> Speaking of which, oh, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty sure it's the next scene is when he's out. I don't even know the name of that tree. Godswood? Yeah, sure. Okay. When he's out there and Jamie comes out there, I was kind of looking in the snow. I'm like, I don't see any tracks. Don't see any tracks. <laughs> he's did... the three-eyed raven. He flew out there. I'm like, how did he get there? He <laughs> obvious. I've never seen him wheel that thing on his own. So somebody's pushing him around. Yeah. It ain't Hodor. So no, who the fuck's pushing that. this guy around and then just ditching him? I guess we should mention, uh, I mean, if anyone's listened this far, we are spoiling this episode, by the way, in oh. case you haven't guessed. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. We should have definitely said that prior. We but... already did the three, two, one, go fuck yourself for uh, Road to Perdition, so we don't so need true. to do it again. So true. Um, okay, so back, yeah, Brand's staring off in the distance, being a creepy fuck uh, who hopefully dies soon enough, but probably won't. Um, to but... his credit, he does have the best line in this opening scene where Jamie is saying that he was a different person back back in the day when he was the golden lion and he's changed so much and he did things for his family. And then Bran just pipes up and says, the things we do for love, a little callback to episode one mm. uh, when he gets pushed out the window. Yep. And Jamie just has this look on his face like, fuck, I'm about to get ratted out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, opening, <clears throat> the opening scene's fine. Um, I think it's actually... Uh, uh daenerys that kind of steals the scene uh, but she's always gives great reaction shots to things going around her the the control she has but you can also see the uh, power and resolve that she has uh, i love the way that she speaks when she's exerting her influence uh almost like she's talking through her gritted like talking through gritted teeth um, but otherwise, the scene is fine. Yeah, uh, Amelia Clark doesn't tend to steal all that many scenes, to be honest with you. Like, no, rarely no. after one of her scenes am I going, wow, what a powerhouse performance. But she does portray, she, she's gotten better at portraying this sort of uh, 
this pragmatism that uh, she needs for uh, for the role of Daenerys. So yeah, I'm uh, I've got no problems with the opening scene. Maybe, what do you think about uh, Daenerys trusting Brienne's word? Like, like I just didn't love that the only reason she ends up trusting Jamie is sort of through to a through a chain of trust. Like Jamie is trusted by Brienne, who is trusted by Sansa, who is trusted by Daenerys. So in turn, she forgives Jamie for murdering her father. I guess I, I don't know if I totally bought that, but I guess they sort of have to put all of that be- uh, beside them to uh, to unite against the undead. So. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I uh, I think she's hesitant and I think she only I think she only kind of does it for what's revealed later on is for her love for John. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. I I did forget that uh that John she does ask his opinion. So, yeah, I did forget that. Uh, from there, uh, she also has a couple of jabs at Tyrion uh, in in this opening scene. So uh, when Tyrion says, "I know my brother," and she says, "Just like you knew your sister," and then in the scene following, uh, he basically gets fucking chewed out by Daenerys yeah. for. Uh, she says, uh, "I think I have it written down here somewhere." Either you didn't know she was lying, uh, which makes you a traitor, or you did, which makes you, or, or either you didn't know, which makes you a fool, or you did, which makes you a traitor, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, she is not fucking happy with her hand of the queen. No, no, <laughs> and rightfully so. And yeah, rightfully like so. that was one of my biggest problems with last season, actually, and last couple seasons, is that in the early ones, Tyrion is a master game planner. He's always he's he's not physically imposing being a dwarf but he is he's just got a brilliant mind and then the last couple of seasons he's just kind of fallen by the wayside and hasn't had anything to do and when he trusted cersei to send her army north i i thought it was the dumbest fucking thing i've ever seen agreed agreed i thought it was i thought it went against his character but whatever but at least the show's acknowledging it now i'm hoping that they're going to give him some form of redemption through this it's not like they've just swept it under the rug like hey actually it was really smart that i did that like, mm-hmm. no it, it, it was really dumb you need to you need to step your game up so yeah i concur yeah uh okay we get a small flirtatious scene from gendry and uh aria <laughs> where she's asking him if her weapon's made. I don't know if there's anything I wanted to say about that, other than that the uh, visual storytelling of him just having steam blow all over his uh, unbuttoned shirt <laughs> and his uh, rippling, sweaty chest was... I was going to uh, say, oh, I'm like, did, you, did he uh, maybe work out a little this uh, these past <laughs> two years, knowing that he was going to have a, 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 a semi-nude scene? Because yeah. I don't remember him being this w- uh, athletic-looking. It was all that rowing he did in the middle uh, from the time he left uh, Melisandre's. He rowed away, and we didn't see him for like three seasons after that. So <laughs> that must have been what it was, I guess. Yeah, I was just like oh, that that scene where she's watching him. I guess blacksmith. Can you use blacksmith as a verb? He's smithing, I guess. Smithing. Is that right? When, I don't know. Someone's ooh. gonna correct us. All right. Uh, one of our listeners, get, uh, when he was doing that, and that you could see from his little low cut shirt that he's got a little bit of a peck action going on, I was like, "Somebody's working out." And then yeah, the, exactly. And then the second time watching, and I was like, "Yeah, you've been working out because you got that semi nude scene coming up. <laughs> that shirt was coming yeah. off. You didn't want it to. You didn't want to be ripped because that would be odd. But you mm-hmm. definitely put in some work." Yeah, and he uh, he glazed himself with olive oil a little bit from the from the looks of it. He yeah, got himself all shined up too. Yeah, 
Uh, we already talked about the Brandon Jamie scene, which is shortly after that. I don't know if there's really anything else we need to add. No. Um, but that leads into the scene uh, with Sansa and Daenerys. Right, right. Which is a scene I really enjoyed. Sansa's really... I really have enjoyed her arc because she was such a whiny little priss at the beginning of this series. Yeah. And she's really become quite a strong character. And I love how she's no longer unafraid to stand up for herself and for her people. And this was yeah, a, this was a great time. Like Daenerys is trying to make this bond and connection and Sansa's willing to engage. But the moment it comes up, she's still worried about the North because these are her people and she's, she, she's there to lead them. And so when the topic comes up, she's like, what of the North? Yeah, I think everything that she's gone through, all of the trauma that she's had, has also really reinforced her identity as a northerner. Mm-hmm. Like she's seen so much shit, and so much shit has happened to her in King's Landing, just for being a Stark. Yeah, and I think that's really reinforced her identity. And and then they take it back from the Boltons as well. They take back Winterfell from the Boltons. So I think she's incredibly proud of who she is now, and it really shows. And I like that. Um, yeah, and I also like the way the scene is constructed. So. Uh, Daenerys and Sansa, uh, when you say, uh, she said, what of the North? There's a lot of dialogue before that where it looks like they're really coming to a resolution. Yes. They're really meeting common ground. Sansa's uh, put all of her concerns forward about uh, John becoming stupid for love. And like he doesn't want him to fall in love at all. Mm-hmm. Or she doesn't want him to fall in love, rather. And uh, she's worried about certain things about Daenerys as well. But... Uh, it looks like they're coming to a resolution, and then just at the right moment, uh, somebody walks in and interrupts their conversation just as she's saying that they'll never bow, or she's implying that they'll never bow to another uh, Southern Queen. Yep. Uh, where do we go from there? Uh, da, 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 da. We have Theon reuniting with Sansa. We have... Oh, uh, the, the, the Night's Watch returns from the Wall yes. uh, with Tormund. Uh, so... Uh, the Tormund has really been relegated to comic relief. Oh my god! And I'm, can you, and I'm kind a, of okay with it. I I am because he's so good at it. He's so fucking funny. He, All of his lines, like his, <laughs> when they first arrive, and he says, "Is the big woman here?" Fuck, man, I was in stitches. That is such a funny line. Oh, and, and the <laughs> the shot of him because it's kind of over his shoulder, and he's turning to look around. His yeah. eyes <laughs> just open in the hopes of catching a glimpse of her. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely fallen into comic relief. And it's just like, does he have maybe the best line in episode one? My eyes are always blue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's another good one. Yeah, he's and he's got some more nice comedic moments coming up uh, yeah. at, in the fireplace scene. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Mm. Anything else you wanted to add there? Not really. Not really. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to go to from there was uh, Grey Worm and Masande have a brief scene where they talk to each other about uh, what they're going to do afterwards. If they both survive, they're going to go to uh, her home city of, I think it's Noth is where she's from. Mm. Um, they're going to go back there and start a life together. She'll no, Grey Worm has promised to defend their people, and they're just talking a lot about what they're going to do after the Battle of Winterfell. Uh, yeah, so Grey Worm's dying, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a scene like this 
when everything just seems to be so neatly planned out and they, they're really falling in love, like, there's no fucking way Grey Worm is coming out of the Battle of Winterfell alive. I am calling it. Uh, there's, I think, the next episode, um, the, the next episode is the big war. And I, I think I'm going to put the over-under on, and by major characters, I'm going to say, like, people that have an actual plot line to them. Yeah. As an example, like, one of my favorite minor characters is uh, Leanna Mormont. Yeah. She's, uh, that, I would not classify her as a major character. Ooh, interesting. She's but not. Grey Worm and Grey Worm and Masande, both major characters. They have their own plot lines that we have okay. followed. I can see us getting into semantics on this, but okay, what's your over under? My over under on major character deaths in the next episode alone. Okay. Five and a half. Five and a half. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll uh I'll I'm I'll probably take the under on it. Yeah, I, I was thinking I'll, I'll probably I'll take the under I'll, as well. I'll, I'll go four and a half then. Okay, that's tough. That's that's honestly tough. Let uh, if you're still listening, let us know uh, what you would take if the over under for major character deaths, loosely defined major character, um, is is four and a half. Are you taking the over? Or are you taking the under? I, I'm de- I'm I'm gonna take the over because I'm gonna tell you right now. I guess my definition of a major character. The only reason yeah. is, for me, I'm like I oh, shit. Okay. <sighs> Let's go with three tiers of characters. Obviously, you have the the major ones. Like your your main players, your Jon yes. Snows, your Daenerys, yes. Sansa's, etc. Yeah. Then the second tier are characters that have had their own their own moments or scenes throughout the series where none of the major players are in that scene as well. So, so I would say Jorah, uh probably Grey Worm, Missandei, yeah. Tormund, all of them like when they went off on their stuff, like all those kind of guys, someone like Leanna Mormont never has. We've never seen her outside of doing anything outside of Winterfell as long as, as much as I can remember. So who is the least important major character might be a good like baseline. Who's the least important? Is it like Bran maybe? No, he's, he's, he's too, he, he's, he's far too important. Like he that, is technically a Stark and I guess he's the three eyed Raven. Yes. So, are we talking tier tier ones, the top ones? Yeah. And then middle tier, and then and then our nice little side characters that we enjoy but never get scenes on their own. Like Leon Mormont. Yes. So you're talking about, do I think any of these major players are going to die next episode? No, I don't think any major players are dying next episode. No. But the second tier. Four and a half. I'm going on the over. Ooh, we're going on the over. Because I think, uh, I think you can probably kiss Tormund gone. You can yeah. kid, I bet I I Theon Greyjoy dead. Yeah, because his his whole plot line is that he betrayed the Starks and now he wants to earn their respect back by fighting for them. So yeah, he's fucking dead. Yeah. Uh, Grey Worm's gonna be dead because he's almost found some happiness with Masande, so he's gonna die. Yep. Uh, and, and he would be honored to die defending her. Um, I wouldn't. Those other uh, Night Watch guys, you can kiss them goodbye. Yeah, but are they? Mm-hmm. They, they might be third tier they could be but they've had their own scenes okay this is what i'm talking about this is where the semantics yeah. come into play <laughs> whatever we don't have to argue semantics but i'm just I'll, I'll take the over as well i think it's gonna be over four and a half for sure i think you can kiss podrick goodbye too yeah absolutely 
Although, I actually, we skipped over a scene with uh, Podrick. Nothing too particularly important happens, but I did, if, if we're done talking about uh, uh, major character deaths. Sure. Um, I did just briefly want to say, uh, Podrick seemed to be uh, throwing Jamie some side eyes. Did really? you happen to notice that? When, I didn't when notice Pod, that. When Pod is training and Jamie approaches Brienne to uh, ask if he can be in her service, it kind of looked like Pod was throwing Jamie some side eyes. Am I the only one who's... Uh, he looked like he was not happy to see Jamie. I didn't catch that at all. Maybe I'm crazy. It could be. I don't know. Um, where do we have? Okay, so we just talked about Grey Worm and Masande. Uh, oh, there's there is a great scene with uh, the I think it's Sam, John, and whatever the fuck the guy's name is, who's the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch now. The three of them have a scene together anyway, where um. <laughs> Oh, uh, yes, he starts talking about how the world's gone to shit if Sam... Yeah, yeah. says, we're all truly fucked. And then uh, Sam says to him something like, calling you fucked wouldn't be accurate, strictly speaking. Yes. <laughs> he has a, gets a nice little burn on him there. Uh, so then we, we arrive at really what I think is one of the best parts of the episode, which is them all drinking together. So we get uh, Tyrion, Davos, Brienne, Pod, uh, most of your major players all drinking together. Tormund is in there. Oh, the one, thing we, just... the one thing we skipped over is Arya getting her virginity taken. All right. Okay. So that was uh, that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, yeah. Did you? I mean, it wasn't wasn't a surprise that they that they fucked, but I mean. I don't know. I guess I wasn't expecting a. Uh, oh, what's her actress's name? Um, I forget. I wasn't expecting an Arya nude scene before. I was expecting a Sansa one. But we here we are. Yeah, I was uh, a little taken aback. It yeah. uh, it definitely caught me. Maisie Williams. Maisie Williams. There we go. I was shocked that we got as much as we did. Like I thought it would be implied that they had sex, but I did not think we would see as much as we did. <laughs> Hold on. I need to quickly check something because this. Uh, 22, I checked. She's 22. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is where it gets odd for me because the show's, it's eight seasons, but yeah. a couple seasons have had more than a year break between them, especially this so, one, almost two years. Yeah, it was 2011 was her, uh, was Game of Thrones start, right? Roughly. Yeah. Let's, let's just say that. So that's eight years ago. So when she started, she was 14. Yeah. I don't know when her and uh, what uh, Gendry's story arc began, but it couldn't have been season three. No, season two. Season two, season three, three at the latest. Yeah. So yeah, she would have been fifteen, sixteen. Well, and... dude, in the in the book, she's still like fourteen now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not that I read. But the what I'm talking about is someone like. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, I need to find. So Gendry's played by Joe Dempsey. Okay. So Joe has known Maisie Williams since she's been fifteen, uh. and then she gets all for realies naked in front of him. That would be awkward for me. That would be really weird. Yeah, he probably felt super awkward. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, it was. If there's anything else really of substance to add to that, <laughs> yeah, I I did like uh, Ari is a character I really like, and uh, I'm curious as to where how her story is going to end. I haven't fully decided if she survives or not. 
Yeah, I don't know. There, I, a lot of the major players, I don't really know how or when we're going to see deaths. But yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe Arya could die in the Battle of Winterfell. I don't know how exactly that would serve her arc. She hasn't killed a lot of the people that she wants to kill yet. So I feel like that would be unsatisfying for her to die in the next battle. Agreed. Uh, okay, but so I just wanted I just wanted to touch on that. So let's get to obviously the best part of this episode. Yes, them all drinking together. Yes. And that's where, again, we get some really great reaction shots. Um, when Tormond comes in and meets the Kingslayer, but calls him the King Killer, and tells the story of how he got the name uh, Giant Bane. Giant Bane. <laughs> when he starts drinking that, what uh, I guess is Giant's milk, and he's drinking it rather sloppily, there's a great reaction shot from Jamie Lannister which I am not sure if it's scripted or not, because you can just look at him like, it's kind of like, because they really hold on him drinking a lot. Yeah. Almost to that point of where it's like, it's that awkward long scene. And I, I, I the look on Jamie, uh, his real name is Nicholas, right? Something like that? Yeah, Coster Waldau, I think. Yeah, Nicolaj, or whatever, Nikolai, whatever. Nikolai, sure. He does that kind of like, look to the side, like, did they say cut? Like this is getting <laughs> like, or the or the like. Can you believe this is happening? Kind of thing. Like, almost almost to the point of breaking character, but it still stays within the character. I just loved it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess we can stay on this, and I mean, it cuts back and forth between other goings on in Winterfell yes. and them all drinking together. But I mean, this is really the bulk of the episode. We get them. Uh, we get them singing a song together as well. Uh, Davos has a really good line. I'm really sad Davos hasn't had a lot to do yeah. uh, recently. Uh, well, he was handing out some he's... pretty tasty food. What was that? Remember, he was handing out some pretty tasty food this episode. That's right. Yeah, he did have a good little speech to the girl uh, telling her that they're going to need her to defend the crypt. That was really cute. Yeah, it was super cute. That was really cute. Um, uh, you can kiss, he you can kiss him really goodbye, good too, I think. I missed that again. I, you can kiss him goodbye. Oh, you think you can kiss Davos goodbye? I do. Oh, I'm going to be so sad if Davos dies, but you're probably right. Like, what purpose does he serve? Yeah, I guess his storyline's kind of ended. Like, he started as a servant of Stannis Baratheon, but... Yeah, don't and, get me wrong. I'm, he... I'm, a big, I'm a big fan. And sorry, I kind of derail what you're talking about. Yeah, no worries. I, I just wanted to say the, the line of him uh, when they're talking about singing the song, and uh, Tyrion asks if Davos knows any, and he just says, you'll beg for a quick death. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice. And then Pod uh, has, has quite a nice singing voice, actually. I wonder if that's actually his. Yeah, curious. Yeah. Um, oh, I have a couple notes actually written about, because uh, I have Gendry and Arya's sex scene here um, in my notes. Yeah. So I, I did just want to also say about that. It's kind of fucked up that Arya, maybe it's just because she's like immature and young, even as a character in this episode but i just don't like how she's like quizzing gendry about his sexual history and she's like guilting him about having slept with other people before they were romantically involved at all Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i just that just really struck me the wrong i lost respect for Arya on that i'm like that's such a stupid person thing to do it's just uh, it's 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 something it's just an immature act because all of us do that when we're teenagers. We always ask about our partner's sexual history. And then mm-hmm. finally you grow up and you realize it doesn't matter. Exactly. That was mainly the point I was trying to make. 
So anyway, back drinking. Uh, yeah. We're all in, in the drinking room here. Uh, we get a pretty good scene of uh, Brienne being knighted by Jamie. A very touching scene. Very, if I'm, very touching. If I am to nitpick a little bit, mm-hmm. does it not seem like a throwaway rule that they just sort of added that any knight can make another knight? No, I've that that's it's not a throwaway rule. It's it, that's it is, established already. It, I don't know if it's established in Game of Thrones lore. Yeah, but that is uh that is something that can be done in real life. Okay, well, it just seems like a great way to get like a fuck ton of knights running around. But well, they don't they don't remember for them to knight somebody. Mm-hmm. I I think it's just something that we don't really truly appreciate as much as these characters would in their in their real life right yeah being knighted is a big deal it's 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 an even bigger deal back or not back then in their world and in our world back then nowadays we're knighting fucking actors are you are you kidding me like Mm -hmm. that makes zero sense but being knighted Back in back in the you know in the I guess for lack of a better word the dark ages and stuff like that and in the Game of Thrones realm it is a very huge deal and a huge honor and carries with it a lot of weight. I think that's just a type of honor that we don't fully understand and that's why like knights wouldn't just start knighting people around because it, with it carries a lot of responsibility and I believe a lot more privilege as well. So they wouldn't just start knighting everybody they possibly could. So the fact that Jamie would do it shows the level of respect he has for Brienne. Damn. Well, apparently Manny wrote his uh, PhD on uh, knighthoods, so <laughs> I uh, yeah. I stand corrected. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is a very touching scene. Uh, you can you can see there's a nice little edit when Brienne says that she never wanted to be a knight. And then she realizes that she's around Pod, who she has told previously that when she was a little girl, all she wanted to be was a knight. Yeah, and I know yeah. they cut over to him, and he looks at her like... He's like, bitch, you full of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you better not be fronting, girl. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so then Yeah, you can see just how happy she is when she's being applauded after she's knighted. Yes, it, uh, that is a great... And she has like a big, glowing smile on her face. And tears. Yeah. Like, those happy tears. And I love... I, it's it's so it's so the whole scene's so well directed in this part because they're about to witness something that's never ever occurred in the history of this realm mm-hmm. is that a woman is about to be knighted. You can see like Tyrion like turns, gets off his chair, and comes around, and like and Tormund stands up. Like none of these people want to miss this event. Like this is massive, and it's the one person that deserves it. Yeah, that's very true. So, uh, Brienne, is she dying next episode? Yep, sure is. Yeah, I, I would say Brienne is probably dead next episode. How many people? Look at look at the numbers that we talked about yeah. people dead. We're That's over that true. four and a half already. I think the over is, is probably being taken. I mean, look, Brienne just got everything she wants. So that's usually a great indicator for when somebody's going to die is their plotline has been complete. She's fought honorably and hard her entire character arc through all eight seasons of this show. She finally got what she wanted, which is to be a knight and to be honorable and to be good. And she got everything that she wanted and she's respected by her peers. So now there's nothing left for her to do except die. Yes. So, yeah, I have I have Brienne dying next episode, no question. Or at least, I don't know if they're going to the battle next season. I don't know if we're going to be seeing King's Landing. Or sorry, not next season, next episode. 
I don't know if we're going to be seeing King's Landing next episode or think, if we're going you, to be seeing you, Winterfell again. Oh, we're, oh, no, 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 no. Next episode is the war. One, next episode is the war. 100%. Okay, there we go. So, I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. Do you think Brienne... Do you think Brienne survives that and then dies in the... No. no you think she, she? this is where she bites the bullet? If she's dying, she's, bat, she's dying in Winterfell fighting for the good of humanity. Fair enough. Good. good. Do you think you think there's a chance she survives and goes on to die? Not a chance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I guess the, uh, the climax of the episode, I guess you should say... Uh, is John and Daenerys finally having their little awkward conversation about how they've actually been anti-nephew banging this entire time, and more importantly to the plot of the show, uh, that John is the rightful heir to the Seven Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And I like how I like how Daenerys points out that the two people that told him this are the two people closest to him. Yeah, that's a. It's definitely when when she pointed that out, I thought, huh, that is actually a good point that I did not even recognize at first yeah the only two people on earth that had this information were bran and uh sam yeah yeah and uh there is a i'm pretty sure yeah it's it's in it's down in the crypt she gives him a look where i waver towards the idea that daenerys kills him it could be. I, I'm honestly, I, would, I honestly would not be surprised. I would love it. That would be fucking awesome. It I would be so much better than having a happy Hollywood ending where they sit on the throne together and they reign as man and wife or something like that. It would be so much better if Daenerys killed him. Yes. It would be so badass, especially after we've seen Jon almost die, then come back to life and then actually die and then come back to life. You know, it's been he's been saved from certain deaths so many times. But I don't think anyone really expects him to die anymore. So if you actually fucking kill him, what a powerful ending to the show. And showing how Daenerys, as pure and well-intentioned as she is, would have to sink to that level uh, in pursuit of power. I think that would be such a great ending. I would, I'm hugely in favor of it. Yes, that would be awesome. And she, she looks like she's repressing some rage, honestly. Like Again, relatively well-acted scene by Amelia Clark mm-hmm. by her standards. Because uh, when he tells her, she has this, like, repressed rage on her face where she says, if this is true, that makes you the last male heir of uh, the Targaryen family and make it gives you a claim to the throne. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say it makes you the rightful heir. She says it gives you a claim. I like that's a nice little uh, nice little touch there. Because yep. she's not ready to give it up. Not yet. <laughs> no. And like after everything she's been through, can you blame her? Yeah, like she's like I've come this far and I'm this close, and now you and this is thrown in my face. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I'm I'm really hoping that she kills him. What if she fucking stabs him during the battle? How crazy would that be? Mm, yeah. What if in the heat of battle she just sees an opportunity to dispose of him and and takes it? I just want to make if if. if if it's something oh, now you just made me angry what if it's something along the lines let, oh, hold on let me try and think of a how could this happen i'm trying to think of a proper situation okay this this is basically what's making me upset and again this is all speculation because we're under the assumption that daenerys is willing to kill the man she loves just for the iron throne so yeah let's say she sees an opportunity 
to kill John during this battle. Okay. And she does something with a, a sword or she has a dragon do something. Not basically maybe, who knows, blowing something up and he's it looks like he died. And then he comes back again. Oh, God. I would be so fucking mad That's if they did that. That's what I'm worried about. I want to no. I want to see like if 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 it's a dragon thing, fucking have the dragon fucking roast him alive. Yeah. If it's a dragon thing, have the dragon swallow him whole. I if she's going to kill him, please let there be no doubt in my mind that it happened. Let him stay dead. Let him stay dead. But let's all I don't not I don't only want him to do fans want that. But Jon Snow wants that. Next time he dies, he wants to stay dead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. I, oh, it's all good. I just, I don't want him to cheat death again. That's all. No. That's all. I... That's been the biggest problem. Because I mean, if you remember early seasons of Game of Thrones, what was the appeal? And again, if you haven't seen early seasons of Game of Thrones, I can't imagine you're listening to this anyway. But I'm going to spoil some major plot points. Uh, like Ned Stark's death, completely unexpected. If they had brought him back, it would have cheapened the entire message that honor will get you killed. Same thing with Rob, and same thing with Catelyn. Rob. If they had brought any of those characters back, it would have cheapened it. We have seen that so many times with Jon Snow that that feeling you got in early seasons of Game of Thrones where anybody could die, in my mind, is gone. A 100%. So I think this, this is just off the top of my head here. Like I didn't really have this in my head until you and I started talking about it now but I personally think Daenerys killing Jon Snow for the Iron Throne in the Battle of Winterfell against the undead would be fucking badass I think that would be a ballsy way to uh to show just the effect that the pursuit of the Iron Throne has taken on Daenerys and it would have a nice little touch of uh her looking a little bit more like the Mad King yeah yeah because he's there was a nice little touch in the episode previous where Jon Snow said to Sansa, she's not her father, and Sansa says, no, she's prettier. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's the best idea. I'm just saying it's definitely one path they could go down. I think it would be pretty cool. I'm just hoping that Jon ends up dead. That's all I kind of want. And don't <laughs> get me wrong. I don't hate the character. I'm a big I fan. I love of- Jon Snow. I love Jon Snow. I, I, just like I love Ned Stark and Rob Stark and uh, Catelyn. Rob Stark was my favorite. That was, but that was devastating exactly to watch. Game of Thrones. Hmm? Honor gets you killed in Game of Thrones, and Jon Snow's pretty fucking honorable. Sure is. Yeah, so, I don't know. Especially, I mean, him telling Daenerys right before the battle, not exactly the best timing. Yeah, that was... yeah. At the very least, all I want, give give us a scene, if you're not going to kill off Jon Snow next episode, give us a scene where Daenerys thinks about it. Give us a scene where she sees Jon Snow undefended, isolated, and she she has the opportunity... To roast him alive. Give me and let her make a decision. And if she makes the decision to kill him, have him stay dead. But if she decides not to make if she decides not to kill him, you know, either way we see some sort of character arc from her in that decision. So I just, give me a scene either way where she has the decision to kill him. Does that make sense? I'm with it. Yep. Hundred okay. percent. We've been on this for a long time, but <laughs> But yeah, uh, the the main thing in that scene is that uh, Jon Snow reveals... I guess we're pretty much at the end of the episode, hey? We, yep. we went down to the crypts, and uh, he revealed the secret to Daenerys. Uh, yeah, and then we get the White Walker showing up at Winterfell. Yep. That's, uh, that's the episode right there. That's it, that's all. Yeah, so uh, what did you think of the episode overall? Uh, I, d- I enjoyed it a lot more than the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they're kind of wrapping 
the story's up. They're getting, they're moving the chess pieces into place. This was more of that. Uh, like we said, it looks like Brienne's story arc is pretty much done. Yeah, so. I think uh, Brienne's definitely dead. I think Tormund's probably dead. Um, who else do we land on? Uh, Jon Snow would be a big one. I don't know if they actually are going to go that route, but that would be crazy. I would love it. Uh, I'm not. I'm not willing to put money down on him uh, dying, though. We said Podrick. Podrick's dead. Uh, uh, most Grey Worm. Grey Worm's dead. Um, Theon. Theon. There's yeah. the there's the over under. Yep, that's that's five there. We take the over on on four and a half. Okay, let's um, let's do this. Let's do this. So it'll be fun. Yeah. Your prediction on how many characters, either sec first, second, third tier, basically, so basically characters with speaking lines. Yes. Okay. That have had like more than one scene. Okay. You know, like if that little if that little girl dies, that don't count. The little girl with the scarred face that's going to protect the crip. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't fucking count. Right? So, you you know who we're talking about. But Leanna Mormont. Leanna Mormont counts. Yes, she does yeah, count. Okay. Okay. All right. What's your death toll next well, episode? That's saying if next episode is the is whole battle, battle and it ends. Yeah, If okay. it's just the Battle of Winterfell between the White Walkers and the Winterfell army. What, your, I'm, a, I'm a bloodthirsty asshole, honestly. What's your I body want, count? Are we doing prices right rules? Because I'll just guess one person, but you know, uh, if it... no, <laughs> we're not going to talk about who's closer. We're just going to see if somebody can guess it right. Okay, I okay. You I'm know what? No, gonna go. We, we, we'll see who can get closer. Not prices right rules. Okay, I'm going to go ten. <sighs> I am a bloodthirsty maniac. I want lots of people to die in this episode. Uh, like I said, them almost killing people and then not killing them has been the biggest problem for the last several seasons for me. So I am optimistically going to say 10. It's probably going to be less, but hell, why not? Ten's <sighs> pretty good. And again, this is, this is realizing we're including minor characters. So like, what's his face from uh, the Night's Watch? Who's still there? He's included in this. You know, there's, yeah. the there's one, definitely going to be some, some the, minor characters. The one-eyed uh, guy, that would count. Yep. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, something, Beric Dondarian is that guy's name. Oh, good for you. You're such a fucking nerd. I am a huge nerd. Okay. Okay. Well, see, basically with you picking 10 for me to kind of be closer, I could just take 9 or 11. Yeah. Am I true. willing to be more bloodthirsty than you? Like, that's that's how I could game the system. Yeah. But I want to try and get it exactly right. Also, I guessed first, so you, you definitely did game the system already. I did. You, <laughs> I didn't say you had to guess first. You just threw out a number. <laughs> All right, fair enough. And there's no stakes on this. It's just basically for bragging rights. I'm going to okay. go, you know what? I'm I'm going to play the game fun. I'm going to go more bloodthirsty than you. Whoa. Can I even do that? Hold on. Is there even that many characters there? <laughs> Let's see here. That yeah. safe, 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 safe. One, two, three. Safe. Maybe we should have prepared this before. Yeah, we should have. I should have taken a look here. Uh... God, you picked like the perfect number. Okay, I know. Well then, I, I was very proud of my guess. Okay, I, I, you know what? I'm I, I'm just I will game the system. You know, I'll I'll go twelve. That way, if there's eleven, we both win. <laughs> All right, I'll accept your answer of twelve. Okay. <laughs> oh, ten was such a good number. Fuck. 
Thank you. This yeah. is this is the benefit of having first guess is when you get it right, you get it right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. So so is that is that just about it for us? I think we're good. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. It's been a lot of fun. Next episode, we will see who uh, who gets it right, the the exact number. But we'll also uh, have some more stuff to talk about. So Sam and Manny will return in episode 55, Avengers Endgame.